This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome, everybody. This is Leadership in Action Indeed, Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Mike Hussein, director of the Center for Leadership and Change. I work with the McNulty Program, and I'm here with my good friend, colleague Ann Greenhall, who is the deputy director of that very same McNulty Leadership Program, Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. Anyway, Ann, um, welcome. Good to see (laughs) you. Great to see you, Mike. In fact, I want you to know, Mike, I... I thought to myself, you know, Mike's hosting. I don't have to go in, but, you know, I wanted to be here with you today, Mike. It's the last show of 2019. The last show of, as as our excellent producer pointed out, the last show of the decade, in (laughs) fact. That's true. Can you believe we're heading into the 2020s? Hard to believe. I remember a Y2K, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) I I wasn't around at that time. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, no, actually, probably was. Uh, And, well, thank you for uh, indeed coming in. That's a camaraderie thing. We've worked a lot together. And I think, um, why don't we do this? Just Let's just take a minute. I'll introduce our guest. We've got a great guest today, so stay tuned. Mm-hmm. I'll introduce him in just a moment. Before doing so, though, I can't resist asking about your leadership thinking about yeah. the events of the past day or two on Capitol Hill. Mm. So this yeah. is a nonpartisan program about leadership, of course. And uh, just thinking about it, and I'd like listeners to think along with us. Uh, what what have you yeah. got that kind of comes to mind, not about the partisan politics that we've seen, but about the leadership exercise? All right. Well, Mike, uh, uh, it is uh, timely that you ask me this because you know my habits hmm. and routines. I like to go out on an early morning jog. It used to be a run. Now it's a jog. It'll probably soon be a walk with my dear friend, Marcy. And sometimes, Mike, we even jog by your house and put the paper on your you stoop. You do. I'm, I'm <laughs> enduringly indebted. I hope we don't wake you up with our chatter. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I eavesdrop. That's okay. okay. <laughs> well, this morning, uh, Marcy was going on about how she can't bear hmm. the bombastic outrage uh, you know, that is the conversation that we've witnessed. And mm. I had to stop her in, in her tracks because I could barely bear the bombastic outrage on, yeah. on the jog. So I think just uh, one of the, um, uh, you know, one of the things that I know that we, in fact, our, our guest just last week, uh, Brian, right? Yeah. <laughs> McNeil talked about his uh, what he'd learned through the course of his career, and it was to listen and learn. And so I think just one of the things that I would hope for in the new year, Mike, totally. is that we could do a better job, myself included, in listening and, and learning. Good point, Anne. I'm just going to add uh, very briefly, for me, it's been a, just a really interesting, really amazing tableau to see so many people lining up to speak yesterday Yes, in the House and so much then next 24 hours uh, commentary on it. Uh, such a, a reminder about how important leadership is not every day but on some days. And when those days do come, we want to be ready to speak well. We want to be clear-minded. Yeah. We want to be strategic. Mm-hmm. And we can't shrink 
from exercising our leadership duties. So there's my thought. Yes, and the uh, whole process, as painful it is as it is, I think is an important uh, process that we need to go through. Totally. So process, that's, that's part of the leadership calling, <laughs> is to get the, uh, the scheme in place that can allow everybody to go back to your phrase and to speak but also listen well. So yeah. there, there's our leadership <laughs> thought reflections. for today. Good, very good. Well, I want to introduce our guest now. We've got a, a really interesting person who's going to join us, uh, Dave DeQuino, who is chairman and chief executive of Serco Inc., which is an American division of a huge British contractor. I'm going to say a few more things about him, but just, uh, Dave, let me welcome you to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Appreciate the invite. <laughs> so, Dave, uh, wonderful to have you. Uh, this is our last broadcasting day in 2019. I hope your company and you have had a good year. Uh, a word about your company, then I'm going to just get into a quick question with you. I'll get things going. You're a more than a billion dollar provider of professional technology and management services to the U.S. government and also to Canada, state and local governments. Dave, I think you oversee some 8,000 employees. You've got a very big operation. In the past, you've worked for companies that many listeners will know of by name Raytheon, a huge defense contractor, Lockheed Martin, Aerospace and Beyond. And Dave, just to warm up our conversation here, a starting question is this. Um, you've been on a path for many years in, in, the, in the industrial and, and defense sector here. What got you into this as opposed to banking or <laughs> farming or anything else you might have chosen to pursue your life's course? So what attracted you to this area to get you going some years ago? Well, you know, uh, Mike, I wish I could tell you I had this perfect grand plan in high school, but that was certainly not the case. I, um, I actually wanted to fly uh, and um, went to Farmingdale State University to um, to take flight uh, pilot training and uh, did that, loved the school. Um, it was an associate's degree, and um, when I graduated, I went to Arizona State, and um, at Arizona State, I uh, enrolled in the flight program. And uh, so here's the here's the funny part of this. I have to admit, is uh, I was the uh, campus mailman, <laughs> and uh, on my rounds I met the uh, dean of of engineering, uh, Bill Reed, and uh, we we got to know each other. And he said, "What are you doing? Trying to be a pilot? You ought to be in engineering." And he actually convinced me to change my field, mm. and mm. and that, and then I pursued that. And uh, and then ended up in Lockheed Martin and so forth. So it was a, uh, it was really interesting how I uh, came about it. But uh, Dave, to be great. very cute about it, uh, you might have gone into airmail. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll let that one go. <laughs> it's a Friday morning here. So, uh, Dave, that's really interesting, and my guess is uh, two-thirds of our listeners have a similar moment that they can point to where a life might have gone this way or this way, and often it's a, a conversation or, or a moment that uh, to this day you, you don't forget. So, Dave, just to stay on that, uh, once you had that epiphany, if I can call it that, uh, did you ever equivocate about the decision to not become a professional pilot? You know, um, there's, there's of course a lot of romance and uh, ego associated with being a pilot, and I, I think I've always held that uh, close. But um, 
I would say no. I mean, the, the big moment of equivocation was probably up at 3 in the morning trying to get through chemistry or physics class when I had to change majors. <laughs> totally, totally. So let's now take you forward a little bit, and I'm going to hand the baton over here to Anna in just a second, and that is as you um, went to work for actually four or five companies in this general terrain of industrial manufacturing, uh, serving governments, local, but also other uh, corporate customers. When you got going and in particular began to enter into leadership roles, that's the topic of leadership in action, obviously. What are a couple, what are a couple of the early discoveries, discoveries you made about how to lead that you had not appreciated when you were in college, and my guess is you probably never had a course or a program on leadership development, so you were kind of going from scratch there. What were a couple of the early discoveries that you, or moments, again, almost of epiphany, when you realized to get other people to go in the same direction, you really had to be self-conscious about X, Y, and Z. So what were some of the X, Y, and Zs? That's a great question. You know, I think one that comes to mind is, uh, and there's some more background on this, but when I was at Lockheed Martin, I was on a, a rotation program. Uh, it's kind of like a new new employee, high potential rotation. And they put me in uh, a, the planning organization uh, responsible for, my God, I think there was some 60 folks in planning. And these are the folks that develop the documentation that the workers actually build the aircraft with to mm. give you a sense of what it is. And it was really daunting for me because I was, of course, feeling very smart coming out of my uh, engineering technology degree and realizing that I'm now in the boss, if you will, of these folks. And I hadn't earned that. And I know I was being tested. And I think understanding that uh, I had to come to terms with the fact that um, they were going to give me a lot more education in the process of being their boss than perhaps I was going mm. to give them. But, but then, like, I think the balance was that I felt I had to be confident that I could bring something to. And, and, and understanding that, that that was a partnership, was, was really important to me. And, and what the seminal moment, again, if you want to call it that, uh, and there was a lot of ladies uh, that were uh, in the uh, organization at that time and scared me to death because they had 35 years of experience and, and knew every piece of it. And I think it got to one point where they were looking out for me, and I could see that. They would kind of say, hey, Dave, uh, you're going to go in this meeting or you're going to do this, and just be careful of this. And they were they were imparting that that wisdom and experience on me and protecting me. And, and that made a big impression to me because I, I realized it was all about trust mm. and being a team. Oh, so good, Dave. It's very nice to have you on the, on the show. If I could probe a little bit, in that first position when you, if I have it right, you were director of customer supply at Lockheed Martin. Uh, did the people who worked for you, with you, did they have superior technical knowledge than you did, or did you have sufficient or equal technical knowledge as they? Well, and that's, that's a great question, and, and it, um, I, I want to share with you that uh, I joined Lockheed Martin as an engineer and wanted to be an engineer. That was my passion. And Lockheed uh, surprised me. Uh, they, uh, they said, hey, Dave, welcome to the company. I know you want to be an engineer, but you're going to go work on the shop floor for a year 
before we let you design anything. And of course, I was heartbroken. I'm like, what do you mean working on the floor? You know, I'm an engineer. I'm I'm really smart. And um, so they put me on a rig, uh, and I was uh, actually center body complete. I'll never forget <laughs> that. And I had a crew of folks that were putting the aircraft together. And honestly, I had some sheet metal experience from my very early life, but they were way ahead of me. And it was another experience where I had this technical knowledge, but they knew really how to build this aircraft. So it was a very daunting experience to now be in charge of these 20 folks uh, building an aircraft and having to absorb it. So absolutely, I felt that they were much smarter than me yeah. in a lot of areas. Yeah, and and I'm hearing also that they were probably older than you in most instances, too. Is that right? Yes, I'm afraid so. And it was it was a mix. There were some younger folks that had come on board, but mostly uh, there were there were artisans there that were there for thirty years. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate this uh, example because oftentimes my impression is that people gain greater credibility when they come up through the ranks with the technical skills of those they are working with. But here I'm, I'm hearing you say that by being put on the shop floor with people who are older and more ex- experienced in that arena, it actually uh, forced you to earn their trust and earn credibility, not through, you know, knowledge, <laughs> but through the way that you worked with and managed the floor. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely. I think I took more from my upbringing as a, as a young man than my college in that case. <laughs> oh, so good. And now if I could just push that a little bit, then hand back to Mike. Uh, you know, I'm, when, I, when you say you took more from your upbringing, you're making me think about what we sometimes called the soft skills. Mm-hmm. So what, what skills were particularly helpful to you? Well, you know, we, we were a blue-collar family. We were very proud. And um, I, I think my upbringing was you work hard, you do the best you can, you treat people, you know, with respect as, as best you can, and you don't assume you're better than anyone else. Of course, I never felt that when I was growing up, but um, I, I think that a sense of, of duty and respect carried with me as I went forward. I, I walked into that job saying, I'm smarter than all of you, but well, I've got a lot to learn, and I hope I can earn that leadership. Yes, and I think okay. that really helped me. Yeah, really a wonderful, uh, wonderful leadership lesson to us all. Mike. Dave, I'm going <laughs> to remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Uh, I'm Mike Uceam. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. And uh, we are talking with uh, Dave DeQuino, chairman and CEO of Circo Inc., a company of some 8,000 employees. Dave, before we leave your past and we're going to work our way into the present, <laughs> got another question about what Ann was referencing and picking up from what you just said. As you went to work on the shop floor, you were uh, an engineer and, <laughs> in a sense, at least nominally the boss of a lot of people there, but you were learning a lot from them. I've got an incident I want to relate to you very briefly and then ask you a question about it. We, some time ago, interviewed a very senior uh, Marine, Marine uh, on the program, and he, uh, I'm sorry, in a different setting, but he referenced when he first got uh, into one of his early combat encounters, he was very eager as a second lieutenant with a number of uh, enlisted Marines 
to do what they were doing to prove that he was not above what they were doing. So as they're digging in for the night, they're all filling up sandbags and creating foxholes. And a 20-year veteran, a sergeant, came over and said, excuse me, lieutenant, we can do that. What we can't do is call in artillery support. (laughs) So would you please let us do what we're doing? And I just want to remind you that as as the officer of this unit, uh, you need to be focused on what you can bring that we can't bring to the equation. So anyway, that's a that's long-winded a way of Dave say, uh, saying, as you, though, took uh, charge of these uh, engineering groups earlier in your career, what did you bring that they could not bring? That's a, that's a great question. You know, and I did, I was a bit exuberant as a young uh, leader to try to show them that I could buck rivets and and do the same, and I got the same reprimand. (laughs) Okay, you've been there. You do do your job, I'll do mine, right. Uh, Dave, go back in your box. You know, and and what I do remember is, and this is what changed my my vector, if you will, as a career, because I never thought I would want to do anything other than engineering. And what I found was, being in the production floor, there are issues that come up, and these smart folks could show me where the engineering wasn't quite right and there were some issues. So my value became that liaison to engineering where I could take my technical Mm -hmm. school knowledge and now this knowledge on the floor and go to engineering and say, look, we've got to change this and this is why it's not manufacturable the way you've designed it and here's a better approach. And when they saw those changes happening, they said, hey, he is bringing some value to the team. I guess we'll keep him. (laughs) Yep, it's great. Uh, Dave, I just want to remind our listeners uh, that if you want to join our conversation, if you've got a question for Dave, it's easy to call in, 844-942-7866. So it's 844-942-7866. Dave, let's take you a little bit further now up the career ladder. As you entered into what is often termed middle management, a kind of an ambiguous phrase, but I think we all have a sense for approximately where where that um, places you in the hierarchy. What did you learn in becoming a middle manager that you had not appreciated before you got there? Uh, it's, a, it's a great question, and I, um, it's, it's pretty clear in my mind uh, when you hit this middle management, it's a different kind of role. You actually have to I felt I had to change my thinking. When I was a crew chief, if you will, on the floor, I could be you know, kind of grubby and knuckle-dragging and have fun and, you know, just, just trying to be part of the team. And then I realized that as you get up in the middle management, you actually have to be able to change your frequency pretty quickly. You are having different conversations um, uh, on the spur of the moment. You might be talking to someone on the line, and it's a different uh, type of approach. And then when you're talking up uh, into senior management, you have a whole different conversation of trying to articulate an issue crisply, quickly, articulately, and make an impression so that they have confidence in you to bring it forward. It's a totally different um, hmm. kind of uh, diversity uh, of conversation that I had to learn. David, a question that Many people have asked uh, on this show and elsewhere, Ann and I are involved in teaching quite a number of undergraduates, MBA students, and mid-career people here, is as you made that move, especially given your technical background, 
How did you, for for instance, <clears throat> learn to become more effective in making uh, a pitch or asking for more funds from uh, more senior management, <clears throat> knowing full well that was unexplored terrain before you got there, but suddenly you are there? So how did you master that higher level? Uh, I, I will tell you, it was a lot of observation to, to watch how managers interact in meetings and, and do it in a convincing way. And, uh, and uh, I actually watched public speakers to hear how uh, they presented material. And then, um, I don't know, I, I also joined Toastmasters, believe it or not. Good for you. Uh, I felt that written and oral skills were absolutely critical. I saw that very vividly, and so I said, I've got to go learn it. And um, and it did help me. Yeah. Dave, I'm glad to hear you reference Toastmasters. Yeah. I've often recommended mm-hmm. that myself mm-hmm. and probably has mm-hmm. too. And in the essence, if you're unfamiliar with it, uh, there are Toastmaster groups across the country and well beyond that will bring you into other people who are looking to become more effective in, in presentations. Mm-hmm. And you're pretty quickly giving speeches to each other and getting some pretty good feedback. So with that, yeah. Anne, over to you. I'd love to. I really like your expression, Dave, about uh, cultivating mm-hmm. the ability to, quote, change frequency quickly. So I'm just wondering if you can give an example of that, just to bring it to life for our listeners. Sure. Uh, so, in, in, and I'll use my example uh, on, the, uh, on the floor as well, uh, or maybe even a little later, when I'm talking to our folks that are on the floor uh, I try to understand what they have to deal with, what policies and procedures and rules and regulations that they're dealing with that may frustrate them. Right. And I have to be understanding and compassionate and, and try to commiserate uh, um, with them a little bit and make them feel like uh, I really do understand. When I turn around then and talk to management, it's a different conversation. Yeah. It's a conversation of efficiency and making sure that we are avoiding errors and we are flowing down the right things to our people so we don't confuse them, and that they have clarity in their work. Mm. And so that's a good example, and that's the complete opposite ends of that discussion. Yeah, and um, would you say that there's a particular negotiation style that you found more effective than others? And so, for example, uh, we talk here a lot about, say, a win-win collaborating, problem-solving style, uh, as opposed to a more competing win-lose style. Did you find that when speaking with upper management that one style was more effective than another? Uh, actually, what I found is that you had to have a toolbox of about four or five styles because yeah. uh, I needed to understand who I was mm. talking to and how they wanted the information. You know, I've had leaders that wanted written documents that they could understand. I've had others that wanted, a, you know, a flyby that gives them a quick re- uh, verbal a summary of what the issues are, uh, but in all cases, I found that I had to do my homework and and try to get opposing views and present that in my argument so that I didn't come off as this is the way and there's no other way. Mm, so but, good. Well, sorry to jump in, but I, I I do so with enthusiasm and a little embarrassment because you remind me. I don't know if I've shared this with Mike, but I reported to a, a dean once who. Uh, in our conversation, I naively, mistakenly took his 
statement as an invitation for discussion and collaboration. But in fact, it was a command. (laughs) (laughs) So I learned quickly, (laughs) know your audience and know whether or not you've been given a command or or an invitation to discuss. (laughs) There are subtleties uh, in our world, and it's often said in, in some national settings, by the way, Ann and Dave, it is said, uh, unlike the U.S., where we got 50 ways of saying yes, 50 uh, ways of saying no, in some countries, there are 100 ways of saying yes, but 50 mean no. Right, exactly. <laughs> the subtleties of communication. All right. Can I try one more here? Yeah, go Mike, for it. How about it? All right. If we, now, I uh, understand that you were CEO of VT Group in Arlington, Virginia. Is that right as well? That's right. Okay, yeah. and was that your first experience then, as uh, you know, in the C-suite, so to speak? It was. I, I was in pretty senior management and uh, uh, Raytheon before I made the move in Lockheed Martin. But this really was the first job where I had total responsibility and reported to a board. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask a question. Mike usually asks: Was there uh, your experience prepared you for that role? But when you got there, what was your biggest surprise? Um, I think I think the biggest surprise was at that at that level um, they expected you to have a pretty clear vision of where you were going, and they wanted that direction and wanted you to be pretty confident in that approach. But at the same time, they wanted to have their voice heard, and balancing those two was very delicate mm. uh, because you wanted to show leadership but you also wanted to make sure they had some vested interest in the vision. Okay. And when you say they, are you speaking then uh, about the board or about the people in your in your senior team? Uh, I'm actually speaking about the presidents. Uh, ah. So I was a CEO, and there were presidents of the individual companies. And, uh, you know, they were running their business and pretty happy and weren't terribly excited about a new CEO coming in with a different version, to be honest. Oh, very good. Let me hand it over to Mike. <laughs> I'd like to talk for a few minutes about another calling once you reach the C-suite, and in particular, your job as chair of the board and CEO of working often directly with your customers. And your customers are not the kind of customers that are on Amazon, people like us buying <laughs> Christmas gifts or holiday gifts, but they are huge agencies, the Department of Defense, the Federal Emergency Management Assistance uh, Group, the Federal Reserve. So what's the secret, Dave, if you wouldn't mind, to your successful working with your largest customers here in the U.S.? Um, a, a great question, Mike. You know, and if I can, I'm going to refer back to a comment that was made to me in the early part of my career by uh, my boss at the time, a fellow by the name of Frank Dwar. And Frank's still around. He's retired now. But he gave me a lot of life lessons as an early career. And he said, Dave, no matter how high up you go in the company, I'm going to give you one lesson that you need to remember the rest of your life, and it'll change your career if you do it. And he said, that is to never, ever let anybody get between you and your customer. Hmm. And that was a very important message, and I have taken that with me. And so to answer your question, I'll say that um, I make sure that I do make the personal visits uh, to see my customers. It causes me a lot of travel, but uh, it really uh, opens it up. It takes the filters away uh, for, you know, the folks that report to me and tell me how the customer relationship is going sitting with that customer. Um, it's important, of course, I think, to trust your folks, of course, 
But at the end of the day, when you go see the customer, you don't go in there with a script. You try to listen to what the issues are and be prepared for some feedback and and to take some action. And I think that, to me, has has been the secret because you can't fake it. Either you're yep. sincere and you want to know or you don't. And they know it. Here's a curiosity question of often wonder what actually happens the moment you walk in to say, let's make it the Air Force, it's maybe the uh, on the civilian side or on the uh, uniform side there. You sit down, pleasantries for a, a few minutes, and then w- what's next? How do you get into the substance of why you're there? And then what do you say to get that, that conversation going? Uh, it's 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 of course it's variable, right? It depends on the customer. I'll go into some customer meetings where I know there's issues, and I'm going to be um, uh, accosted, if you will, with concerns that I need to deal with. But in general, I would uh, always try to give my background and say, I'm here. This is my role. This is how long I've been in this role. This is what I know about the program and what I think I understand. I'm here to make sure that I get a validation from you that I've got that right. And if it isn't right, I want to understand what is what I should think about mm-hmm. differently and how I can help the mission. That's always the way I try to start started, and I and again, I mean that sincerely. Do you take in senior staff with you, or are you kind of a solo performer? Uh, I do both. In most cases, though, I will take uh, somebody with me, but then I always ask for a private time. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's not that I don't trust my folks, but uh, I ask the customer if I can have a few minutes. Uh, when I get in alone, I say, look, um, I know you like Joe or Sally or whoever that is, uh, but I really want to understand if there's any issues who you, that you have of concern. And please mm-hmm. understand I will handle this with discretion. If if there's a concern you have, I, I can go deal with it in a way that doesn't uh, embarrass you or or so forth. So I really need to open that door so that they're willing to share those comments with me. And, and many times they've shared those issues, and they were easily fixable. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Dave, a final question for me and then over to Ann. Uh, these are very important and probably often very direct meetings. So you're talking with people who represent the United States, for example, and your counterparts, the same thing in the U.K. And as you walk out of the room, you probably got a couple to-dos on your now-expanded to-do list. So after a fairly symptomatic or, or typical meeting, maybe with the FAA or FEMA or make it uh, the Pentagon, when you leave that meeting, how do you follow up? What, what's your method? Um, I, what I'll do is I will immediately de- debrief my folks on what I thought I heard and what those actions are and get their perspectives because sometimes I'll not get it quite right or not understand it. But what I'm really doing there is I'm listening to my people to see if there's some built-in issues or animosity with that relationship. That's probably the most important thing I watch for. Dave, if I could uh, follow up, Uh, when you look back at your experience, is there a pattern? You said that lots of times if there's an issue between the customer and a member of your senior staff, it's often fixable. Is there a pattern to what needs fixing? Uh, Many, many times it's about the relationship of dealing with the contract itself. 
uh, a lot of issues stem in this type of business that I'm in, in what the contract says. And the customer may be asking us to do something completely different or outside of those bounds. Oh. And it's that gray area between what we can do within the bounds of the contracts and what we can't. And sometimes we're going to do extra just to get the job done. But in many cases, we have a fiduciary responsibility to the company as well. And we cannot do those requests if they're not contractual. Okay. And do you find uh, that there's sometimes an issue of over-promising and under-delivering on, on the side of senior staff? Uh, absolutely. You know, and we, we call a little bit of that of uh, also an issue of going native, right, where uh, our program folks side with the customer and try to uh, do everything for them and get it extracted from the company. And that's a problem on the other side as well. And then mm-hmm. to your example, uh, we will say, yes, we're going to get something delivered by a certain time. And, and we know that we can't for some reason. And right. We have to be honest. Right. So it's a matter of having what we sometimes call here difficult conversations, and they're not easy. They're not easy to have. And so you find yourself supporting your senior staff and having those difficult conversations. Absolutely. And, and, and sometimes you're on either side of that discussion, and uh, you have to educate them where they didn't lead that conversation in the right direction. Right. All right. Maybe one more then back to Mike. Uh, I really appreciate how you take the time to um, meet with your customer directly and never let anyone get in between you and your customer. Do you take that same approach with your employees? You have 8,000. So how do you how do you build a connection with your employees? Yeah, and, and this is probably one of my favorite areas. I, I have had issues uh, in my career where I have been told by my direct reports that I really shouldn't talk to lower-level folks in the management because that's their job, and if I need any information, they will get it for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not been a good conversation. In many cases, it's resulted in their departure. So I do like (laughs) MBWA, management by walking around, and I do like to talk to people individually and have that relationship. And I know it causes work and angst sometimes, but what I always try to do is never punish a direct report of mine if I get information that they don't have. I just say, hey, this is a bit of data that I've got. Maybe you weren't aware of it. Let's figure out how to fix it and make sure they don't go punish those folks. So it is a very delicate and probably one of the most critical aspects of leadership that I think we have to master because it sets the culture. Yeah, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about how you do that uh, so well, because I can imagine in in a worst-case scenario with someone less deft that it could look like end running. Mm -hmm. And so how do you manage to... Uh, have direct contact with staff members without conveying uh, any sense of undermining your direct reports? Well, and it's a great question, and I've been accused of end-running many times, and, <laughs> um, and sometimes it's a heated discussion where I have to remind them that it's not a democracy, and that is the way I'm going to run the business, and suggest strongly that they should also go down into their organization and ensure there's transparency, yeah. because if any of my direct reports are afraid of me or someone talking to their team, then I've got a serious problem. 
Right. Very good. No, I appreciate that. Mike. Dave, I'm going to intervene just to remind our listeners that they're tuned into Leadership in Action, business radio powered by our school, the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And we're in a conversation, very interesting it is, with Dave DeQuino, the chair and CEO of Circo Inc., which is the British, uh, it's a subsidiary, the American subsidiary of the British um, very, very large firm. And Dave, that brings me to um, a kind of an obvious follow-up question. We've talked about your relations with customers. We've talked about your your willingness to get uh, into the ranks and talk directly with those below you. Many of our listeners have done a 360. They understand <laughs> that we gather information from those above, those in peer relations, our subordinates. Same question here by extension. Thinking about the 360, you work with uh, people on the outside, your customers, people on the inside, your employees. But, of course, you've got a boss or two in, I assume, in London where the headquarters is located. So what is the secret, if you will, to working up, to leading up? Um, and, you know, I, I do. I have uh, two sets of bosses, a U.S. board uh, and, and uh, of course, Rupert Soames, who's our uh, chief exec for the company. Very clearly, it's just honesty and transparency and, and having the conversation. Um, it's funny, when Rupert interviewed me for the job, he, he asked me a very insightful question, and he said, Dave, what would cause you not to take the job? And I said, Rupert, what would cause me not to take the job if, if I can't call you at any time uh-huh. and just bounce an idea off you, uh, unscripted, uh, if I have to really worry about every word I say to you and script it, then I'm not, I'm not coming. And he, of course, said, that's exactly what I want. And, uh-huh. and he's been true to that. And so that's been my, my motto. It's really interesting. Let's think about the, the challenge of working with news that is good and also bad. <laughs> so good news, uh, we, we love to tell our boss we've uh, had something go our yeah. way or a new contract came in. But, of course, then the standard for the next quarter is raised by that much. So we may want to downplay humanly. We may want to downplay our successes, but we also may want to downplay our problems, our, our shortfalls, our our. Yeah. <laughs> Our failure to meet a quarterly um, um, uh, earning target, for example. How do you thus work with good news and bad news as you do communicate with your not only your board here in the U.S., but the people back in the U.K.? Yeah, I, I think the, the best way to do it, and again, it gets back to culture, is on the bad news side, you do it very quickly. And you try to do it in a way that you've outlined what you're doing to correct it. Uh, in some cases, I want help. In other cases, I don't want help. Mm-hmm. I just want them to know, but they always have to know. On the good news side, you try to share it and make sure that if you got a piece of good news, you have an individual in your organization, even a couple levels down, that have been the reason we have that good news, and you make sure you share some of that. Uh, that's my role. It's that insulator. It's uh, it's that buffer, if you will, um, that protects my folks at the same yeah. time. Um, uh, they know it's a free flow of information. So here's a kind of a funny analog just to make it. I often draw upon completely different worlds to help illustrate our own world, uh, whether it's a business school or a company of the kind you run. And uh, there was a a very prominent uh, Civil War general who believed that the less his commander-in-chief, the president of the country, knew about what he was doing, the more latitude he would have to get the job done. 
His successor took the opposite point of view, and that is that the more the commander-in-chief knew about what this field commander was doing, the more resources and support would be provided. So what's your guidance on that? Uh, Uh, I'm definitely in the latter case because the former is too much work. Uh, (laughs) Good way to put it. Uh, just, uh, why is that more yeah, work? Say, just, yeah, say more. It's more work because you, you have to control the information then yeah. from everybody in the organization, and you have to say, it's all got to be filtered through me, and I've got to approve it when it's fully open, transparent data. I don't have to be that filter. It's yeah. it's just too much. <laughs> that's a great, that's really a great question, a wonderful reply. All right, uh, we've talked, as Mike said, about relationship with customers, employees, and uh, relationship with the chief ex- executive officer, uh, Rupert. I'd like to know about how you manage the U.S. board, the relationship with the board. Um, yeah, so uh, this is an independent group of folks that um, don't have an executive stake in the company and so are therefore independent. Uh, I try also to be independently giving them information that they need, right? So I can't bury them with too much data, but I have to give them the strategic issues and the potential catastrophic ones. And that's how I generally deal with them. They are all chairs of committees for our board, and therefore they probe deeper. But I try to, with my board, make sure they have all the major issues and don't get surprised. They know where we're going and where those pitfalls can be. And would you say that uh, as you have come up through the the ranks and up the ladder, has that been a takeaway, strategic information and information about that's uh, about issues that are potentially catastrophic? Is is are those the two issues that you always bring to boards? Uh, definitely. I mean, we we talk people issues and culture issues because that's important as well. You know, a, a poisoned culture or a culture that's not doing well is going to generate more issues and they're going to surprise you. So culture is also very, very important. But yes, I I make sure that they agree or understand at least Mm -hmm. where I'm taking the company and where those potential issues are. You know, I I like to say that, uh, you know, there's no dragons in the woods, uh, but there are 100,000 snakes. And you have to make sure that they understand uh, that we could get that. So good. All right, now, Dave, a, a little bit of a naive question, but how did you learn that? Um, I, again, I think it's by observation, and uh, and it's also common sense, right? I mean, I learned that more from how I want to be treated, and I want to know the data that I have uh, is coming to me as unfiltered and honest and timely. So I just try to use that as I manage up as well. So good. Well, I I appreciate your common sense, and <laughs> I'm paying attention myself. Mike, how about back to you? Yeah, Dave, we're getting close to the end, and I've got a couple more personal questions coming full circle. We began more personally and to end more personally here. Uh, we all have good days and bad days, um, or at least I'll speak for myself. Yeah. That's definitely the case. And what is a let's start with the good day. What does a good day look for look like for you in the corner office? Um, you know, it's it's no question. It's uh, we. I love to win, uh, win programs, and uh, and so when one of uh, my teams work have worked for months and months and have won a program, 
uh, and uh, uh, and we celebrate that. That's probably one of the the best days that I can. We get a big kick out of that. It it's why we come to work. And uh, obviously, when we get commendations from the customer that says we did a good job, we we just drink that up like kittens drinking milk. <laughs> and then the flip side, a bad day. How does that feel? And how do you uh, get beyond it? You know, there's uh, you know there's a few incidents that come to mind very quickly that were really tough. But um, I always be mindful, and I tell my reports this that if you have a really bad day, that's okay. But you don't get to share it. Mm. You get to hold your head high. You get to make sure everyone is calm, and you've got a straight head. Uh, that's something you go out and uh, you know go yell uh, yell at yourself in the woods. But you don't get to do that yeah. publicly. Yeah. You you continue your leadership. That's really interesting. Yeah. And, and uh, just a reference over to you. I think we've heard this from others. Yes. One of your vows in becoming chief executive is to work with people to keep them focused, to keep them optimistic, to keep them going forward, even if it's a very bad day for you. Dave, uh, a last uh, question for me, and Ann may have one here too. For somebody looking ahead, say an engineering student who maybe wanted to be a postal person along the way, but they um, are going into engineering and think one day they too may enjoy the kind of uh, life you've had as a, a professional engineer and now as a very senior executive, what advice would you have them looking ahead? Let's make it from about age 20. Uh, I would first of all, I would say that the oral and written skills, and I know that sounds pretty basic, but it's absolutely critical. If if you can't speak and write, then you're not going to progress. Mm. But but the more important one in my mind is to make sure they understand that uh, they have filters on. Uh, we all have filters. It's what we grew up with. We see life. Uh, through the filters that uh, we were raised with in our experiences. And I think understanding that we're wearing those filters and that sometimes you've got to work hard to look around them and get a different perspective and a different understanding is incredibly invaluable. And that will teach you respecting, respect for others and, and make you take the time to understand mm. that the best decision may not be the one that you're conjuring up in your head. It might be coming from someone else. Oh, great advice. All right. As you look forward, Dave, uh, what's on the horizon for you? Um, well, we're, uh, we're taking Circo to uh, a different place. We're, we've changed the company to a bit more technical. Um, I, um, I like to see us grow a bit uh, further. We're, we're heading towards a billion and a half uh, here just in the U.S., coming from little under 900 million. Uh, and we're expanding some of our business space with our customers. We're bringing in some logistics capability and engineering and IT and merging that with our intimacy with our customer. And Circle is just in a great place. It's, uh, we're so close to our customers and close to the mission. And uh, we're able to uh, feel a part of it. Uh, and that's just a great place to be. So growing the business a bit more and, and giving opportunities for our folks to further their career personally. Oh, that's very good. Well, I wish you the very best in that in the, in the new year, in the coming decade. And, Dave, I'm going to squeeze in here just a final, final question. Uh, you have learned to lead over many years. This was not a course area or an area of training that you had in college, but uh, look at you now. You're leading a workforce of 8,000 major customers uh, across the U.S. and beyond. And as you are now looking at the next generation of leadership within Circo itself, 
what do you, how do you go about helping them uh, master the world that you have become a master of, uh, given the fact that they haven't been through what you've been through? How do you, with a new generation of people coming along, ensure that they're ready to take charge when it's their time to do so? Sure. A tough question, and it really gets down to the dialogue and letting them understand all the aspects of the business. Uh, you know, some of our young folks are just voracious learners, and they really want to immerse and get very deep, but they they sometimes single track a little too much. And, and my advice and my uh, effort with them is to teach them the broader pictures and to show them other aspects. And that's why we do employee rotations and rotate jobs and give them different experiences so that they don't get so singularly focused that, again, their filters get very, very fine-tuned and they can't see the bigger picture. Dave, we really appreciate your willingness to join us uh, today here at the end of the uh, 2019. Uh, It's a great way to uh, wrap up our year here at the show. Uh, If people would like to learn more about you and about Circo, what's the best avenue for doing so? Uh, Well, well, we, of course, uh, have a website and uh, would love for uh, folks to to go to our website and uh, ask questions. And uh, we're also recruiting very heavily, and we need several hundred people. So I would love folks to give us a call and uh, come on board. All right. Mark that down, everybody. Dave, thank you so much for being on our program. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Ann. Thank you, Mike. Really enjoyed it. All right. Thank you. So, Ann. After action review, we always do it. Uh, what, what's the biggest point that really stands out from what Dave has uh, offered up over the last uh, 50 minutes? Oh, he shared uh, a lot of really mm. wonderful points, uh, but uh, two stand out. One is uh, that out in the woods, there are no dragons, but there could be snakes. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the number? About 100,000? Exactly. <laughs> so I, I think it's, you know, it's good, uh, good advice to keep you know, your eyes, so to speak, to the ground. Be aware of what is potentially catastrophic. And as he said, make sure that you bring that and your strategic vision to your, to your board. And more generally for all of us, no matter what level we are in the organization, uh, he had a strong emphasis on transparency and on closeness, whether it's to your customers, your employees, or your board, or your, or your uh, superior. Yeah, yeah, great points there. Two, I'll, I will add myself. Number one, you don't have to be born a leader to become a leader. So I love that, he, Mike. He to be a, <laughs> uh, going to the postal service or maybe become a pilot. pilot. And um, But now, just hearing him out, uh, he's got the full repertoire of what it takes at, uh, from our conversation, and it's all learned. And we didn't talk hugely about that, but great to try to fill in that blank if you're listening to this mm-hmm. with how are you going to become better at communicating with your boss, with customers, and so on. And then the second point I want to end with as well, and that is – you may have a bad day, but it can't show. Um, people expect you've taken a vow, indeed, right. to be realistic but also optimistic about uh, the day. So uh, it's a learned skill set as well. Yeah, there I, it is. I really like that you emphasize that one, Mike. So that the advice to be authentic in your leadership comes with a little bit of an asterisk yep. in that when you are at the top, you've got to model the behavior that you hope to see in others. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.